So one day he said to me, Rick, you have a very interesting voice. Why don't you go with me one day and I'll introduce you to everyone at every studio I go to. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, you ready? I said, thanks, Don, but I'm, a, I'm an on-camera on kind of actor. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways with great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, hi, Rick Hall. Hello, Margot. How are you? Oh, I'm most excellent tonight, especially since I'm chatting with you right by Christmas time. It one is. One time of year. Your, your sweater is very subtle. <laughs> it, it certainly is. I'm a big fan of Rocky and Bullwinkle. There you and, go. You know, if people don't know who you are, they just have to read the text that accompanies the podcast. But I need to say a few things about you because this is exciting for me. I have to tell you, um, an actor, an improviser, a singer, a, a husband, a farmer in the Dell. I mean, you have so many great attributes. One of the things I love is you grew up in farming country in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And you now have a farm in, is it Carleton, Illinois? Yeah. Carleton, yeah, Carleton, little town. And when we say in, in Carleton, it's eight miles out of town between Rockbridge, Jerseyville, Greenfield, and Carleton. So it's not in town. So is it one of those uh, one light, one traffic light kind of towns? There are no traffic lights. In, there are no traffic lights in Carleton. There is a stop sign. There's two stop signs on the main street of Route 267, but that's that's it. Wow, and that's where you draw a lot of your wonderful stories from, growing up and knowing those kinds of people and going to the Baptist church in that community. And my dog will be interrupting us from time to time, but she wants to hear more about some of the things you did uh, prior to today. And uh, a few interesting facts to me are that um, you wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah, when I went to um, I went to McMurray College in Jacksonville, and honestly, the, uh, the, this is a little embarrassing. The, the reason I went there is because they pursued me for wrestling, and uh, they didn't offer scholarships, but they wanted me to wrestle, and um, because I'd gone to state in in high school, and so I just went to the first college that wanted me. Turned out to be a great place, and like I said, I was going to be a veterinarian and just get my basics out of the way. At, uh, at McMurray. And um, I auditioned for a play as soon as I got there. And it was a, it was a musical, a musical review. And the next thing I knew, I uh, was doing a, a pinter play, a very dark pinter play and playing a, a very, <laughs> very evil Irishman. It was fun. And you were hooked, right? That was oh, it. Yeah. 
And then when I told my parents that I was going to be an actor instead of a veterinarian, they were so relieved because as a veterinarian, you just never know where your next paycheck's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> and acting is so reliable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. During this pandemic, um, it's weird. I've gone through periods of time like this as in my acting career where I haven't booked anything for six, eight, 10 months. And uh, you, uh, you get resourceful. And of course, there's way more to it than that with the pandemic. But um, just, um, I go to a lot of auditions I don't get, you know, commercial auditions where they're seeing thousands of people in New York, LA and Chicago. So whenever you book one of those, you're just amazed. So most of the time you don't book them. So basically the pandemic meant I just don't go on auditions. <laughs> Well, later on, we might have an audition for you. We'll see how that goes, Rick, okay? Oh, my, okay. Take the cards right. So your resume is incredible, but some of the highlights are you were part of the original Improv Institute from 84 to 88, maybe. Yeah. And some wonderful folks were there, Susan Messing. Um, yeah, the Jack Bronis and Patty Musker, Michael Racy's, John Machowski, um, and... Andy Stein and I started the place. We actually tore out walls and built a theater and we made that into a theater. And then about eight months after we got it going, I got hired by second city out of the blue. So they kept it going for years and we would have improv till dawn. We'd have, we'd start at night and go all the way till the morning. And it was, and then the second city people would come to our theater after they'd done their set. So at two or three in the morning, suddenly we'd get this influx of energy of, of these improvisers coming. That was before I got hired by Second City. Now, where did you study improv before you were at the Improv Institute or did you just decide, I'm gonna try this thing called improv? It's, um, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, I took one class from John Machowski. And at the end of the class, John said, uh, hey, I'm starting an improv group. Uh, you want to be in it? I'm like, sure. I didn't know anything. I knew I liked improv and my instincts, my natural instincts were pretty good. I really learned by working with really good people. And I, I only took formally took that one class. I mean, there were other workshops and stuff I was involved in, but as far as taking a class, I, John Machowski is the one that got me started and that was quite, uh, quite amazing. And when I auditioned for Second City, it was just a fluke. I'm like, oh, they're having auditions. And I hear you've got auditions several times. And I just went and I did the best audition because there was no pressure. I didn't think I was going to get hired. And when they called and told me I had the job, I was like, really? Are you calling the right guy? But it was... <laughs> and that's where I met Laura. Oh, oh, we're getting into that. We're going to get to that for a second, but they hired you for the touring company. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And then there was this uh, waitress. Now, had she been promoted to playing the music at that point when you came on board? Yes, she was in the touring company that was doing a Monday night show at Second City. And, you know, on a dark night, just to let the touring company do a show, which was great for them or us later um and then they i walked backstage that first night they hired me on that afternoon and said come in and improvise with the cast that night and i walked backstage 
And I looked around, I'm like, okay, these are my actors. I'm going to work at, wow, I like that piano player girl. <laughs> She's pretty cute. And um, we ended up being on the road together and we did a big no-no. We had a road romance, which is no, not a good idea because, you know, we're traveling in a van together and stuff. If things didn't work out, then you're stuck in a van with somebody you broke up with. Oh, that could be a little bit difficult. Now, let's go back because when you okay. said that's the woman I want, I don't know if Laura had the same feeling about you. No, I followed her around like a puppy dog. And she told me later, I swore I'd never marry an actor and I definitely wouldn't marry a comedian. And I said, well, in my defense, I'm not that funny. <laughs> so um, she, um, I, I did follow her around like a puppy dog. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, here's something she didn't tell you. Her nickname at um, in the touring company was the Vixen because she was so cute. All the boys were attracted to her. So, um, but we ended up uh, we ended up sparking a romance, and those road romances never last. Although we dated for seven years and we've been together almost thirty, so we're, we'll see if it lasts. Let's see if it lasts. Yeah, and of course, I think she's one of the most beautiful, adorable people in the world. So um, just to mention a few of your multiple credits that, you know, my favorite TV shows, my favorite TV shows, Seinfeld, um, The Vet, great line you had there, I think, memorable right. line. Um, that was an interesting audition because I auditioned to be Ju Julie Louise Dreyfus's boyfriend. And it was an audition late in the day. I was the last person to go in. And they had auditioned the guys to be veterinarians before that. And Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director, who's always been very kind to me, um, Mark, as I was leaving the building, I was walking down the stairs and he said, Rick, Rick, would you mind reading for the veterinarian? Well, I knew I didn't get the part I'd read for. So I'm like, of course. So he cast me as a veterinarian. And I did one scene with, uh, with Michael Richards and um, that, by the way, that was the, the day, that was the day our first child was born and Laura was in labor for 32 hours. I'd been up with her for a day and a half, almost two days. Wow. And, and I called the set and I said, my wife's in labor and I'm not leaving her. And they said, you stay with her, but then you just come to the set when, we're, when you're done because they were pre-taping that scene. And as it turns out, I got there at 10 in the morning and shot with Michael Richards, which was so crazy because, you know, they, they're showing me, you know, okay, hit your mark here, hit your mark here. Well, Michael Richards is all over the place. And I'm like, tell him to stand still. I'm tired. I'm hitting my mark, but he's not. And then a year later, my agent called and said, Seinfeld called, do you want to do another episode? And I thought, hmm, let me see. I've got to mow the yard and get the car washed this week. Well, maybe I can work in a sitcom. Of course I want to do it, you know. So that you did two of them then. Yes, yes. And I was a veterinarian again. And I got a, okay. I'm you the veterinarian that Kramer went to for cough medicine? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, George ran over a squirrel once. And I had... <laughs> I had to send away for some special, very tiny instruments. And, <laughs> and actually, I got a call from a reporter at the Huffington Post who said he had binge watched 
all nine seasons of Seinfeld. And he thought my line, one of my lines was the funniest line of the series. And so I was like, yeah, sure. It's, you know, if you think so, great, write the article. So I, I, I don't know if I can claim that as a claim to fame, but he did, so. Well, what was the line? Um, it's when George uh, brings in the squirrel and he, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, right. he, and his girlfriend smacks him and he goes, do whatever you can. And I say, you know, he's not going to be the same. <laughs> it's subjective. You know, what, you, what we think is funny. And luckily, somebody writing an article in the Huffington Post thought right. I'd be funny. So. Sure. Now, had you met Larry David prior to this? Did you know him at all? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I, and matter of fact, I don't think he was working on the show then, but I met him when I auditioned with Jeff Garland, who I did know for Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, but I might be getting ahead of you on your interview here. No, 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 no. I, it's one of my favorite episodes, unless you were in more than one. I don't know. I, I'm just familiar with the one episode because my husband is a car salesman. So that's an episode we've watched a lot. And um, if anybody hasn't seen it, tell us a little bit about the experience of working with Larry David and Jeff and being a car salesman who hires Larry David. Well, I um, actually, in the audition, I think the reason I got the job is because I was supposed to be working at a Toyota dealership and and I'm sitting there in the audition and Jeff and I are supposed to be friends from way back, which we are. And uh, he was wearing a Porsche shirt, a, a shirt with a Porsche logo on it. And I gave him grief in the audition. I'm like, can't believe you're wearing a Porsche shirt. Uh, you know what? What size are you? Double X? Okay. I got some shirts in the car. I'm going to go get you a Honda shirt and, or Toyota shirt. And I'm going to bring it back here as soon as we're done. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that got it for me. But you know what's weird is, you know, when you're improvising with with someone, it's always yes and or or agreeing to everything. And when you're audition, when you're improvising with Larry David, who is your boss and the producer you're on the show, you have to take notes from him. And so, not everything is yeah, let's do it because they're trying to make a TV show. So at one point, Larry. Uh, I have to fire Larry at the end. I had several scenes, three or four scenes. And I, <laughs> I have to fire Larry David at the end. And um, he's, he, at one point I said something. And after the take, he said, just stand there after you say you're fired. And I'm like, oh, okay. Which no improviser would say that, but he's making a TV show. He's not improvising a show on stage with a bunch of friends or, or, or colleagues, you know, so. Well, the thing that was so funny to me is you did such a face. I had trouble recognizing you because you had this salesman demeanor, but your face kind of changed. Wow. Is that that's, before or after your surgery, Rick? No. <laughs> that's before my breast implants. So uh, <laughs> which the breast implants take away from this. So <laughs> but you had gone to you had gone, you've been on the touring company and you and Laura, and then you got an opportunity to do something in LA and you were going to go out just for that job, right? Well, I was on the main stage in LA and I put, or in Chicago, and I put up two shows there with some great cast members. And then 
um, there was an agent from LA who came to the show and said, I'll represent you. Well, I did. I'm like, well, who are you? Turns out it was a, a, a agent called writers and artists and they were an A-list agency. And I would come out and go to auditions. It was pilot season. I would go to three or four pilot auditions in a day. I remember not making it to one of them and, and telling my agent, well, I couldn't even get to that one. Now, if I get three in a year, I'm like, woo. <laughs> but I booked um, a reg series regular on a show called Stand By Your Man, where Rosie O'Donnell and I were married. Um, <laughs> which that might tell you how long ago was that was um, when America would say, oh, Rosie would be married to that guy. Um, but yeah, I played Rosie's kind of, um, kind of, white trash husband new jersey uh, kind of new jersey white trash guy and i said things like uh hey honey i'm glad you got home i miss you so much <laughs> that's tremendous and i didn't mean to gloss over everything you did in chicago because didn't you write some play uh shows is that where you did the thing about the pigs and oh. No, Pig Boy, my one-man show was late. I did a lot of commercials in Chicago, right. which was great because then I got my union card. And that's when my neighbor downstate Illinois said, uh, do you want to buy my farm? And I bought a 150-acre farm from him because, wow. you know, I'm 22. I'm living in a $200 a month apartment and I'm making money. I'm like, yeah, I'll buy a farm, which is the best acting decision I've made in my career because- I haven't had to take a, another job, you know, the waiter job or whatever, because I have a farm that actually makes some money. But you ask about Pig Boy. Pig Boy was after Stand By Your Man, the series I did. We did seven episodes. And after that, I was having a lull. And uh, I was doing a lot of bike riding, which was good. I was in great shape. But I was complaining that I didn't have any work. And Laura said to me, well, Rick, you've got all these stories you tell. Why don't you write them down and make it, and do a one-man show? And I thought, nobody wants to hear those stories. They're just people I grew up with. Well, I started writing them and found out not, not only did people want to hear them, but I was pretty good at putting a story together. And as you can tell here in this interview, I'm pretty good at talking. So um, I put together this one-man show, Pig Boy, and Laura played music for it and scored, scored the show. And we toured in the Midwest. We did an extended tour in Chicago for a few months at the Royal George Theater. I took it, HBO picked it to go to the Aspen Comedy Festival, just a half an hour of it. Wow. I know. I was like, wow, I'm swimming in the deep end. <laughs> and you did a, a few other things before you left Chicago. I, I know that. Um, yeah. But we'll, 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 so you went out to LA and there's where, you know, you did, of course, a bunch of, a lot of things, NCIS, Casey and the Detective. Casey, um, under, Casey Undercover, that was the- Casey uh, Undercover, Disney, sorry. It was a Disney show and I, that was one of those auditions where I did one audition, they said the character might reoccur and I did three seasons, 27 episodes. So it was really fun. enjoyed watching that and of course you were in Arrested Development so my favorite shows are Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Arrested Development. Well good. good what was good. that like? Well <laughs> okay 
the casting director's assistant is a friend of mine. Um, and she called me and said, Rick, we have a little part on Arrested Development. It only pays a few hundred bucks. Can you, can you do it? And I, I said, sure, sure. You know, cause all I had to do was say yes. And then I had a job. Well, I called my agent and they were just you never accept a job. They've always got more than $230. Uh, but I ended up doing it. And the casting director's assistant was Phyllis, from, who is Phyllis on The Office. And uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, what was your part? What, what, which episode was it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was so small. I was a photographer at the beach when their whole family was going to take some pictures. And if you see the scene, actually, my daughter one day in her room said, Dad, were you in Arrested Development? I go, are you watching it right now? And she goes, yeah, you're on. I go, yeah, I was on it. <laughs> but if you watch the scene, I only had a few lines and then they get in a big argument and the scene goes on and on. I'm standing there with a camera in the shot and I don't know how to use this camera, really. I mean, the basics. So if you see it, I say my lines, they start to get an argument. I look at the camera like this and walk out of the shot. So I don't have to be in the background doing stupid things with a camera that don't look realistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, did they improvise during Arrested Development as well? Or did they stay to script? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I, was, <laughs> I did my part and got out of the way. I, <laughs> that is really funny. Now, we're going to be talking more today about the work that you've been doing in audio and your podcast. So says Rick okay. and new projects coming up. But was Slice of Pie, was that one of your projects as a podcast? Um, that was actually a CD I recorded uh, in the basement of our church. My friend Phil Swan, who uh, is a writer, actually I'm doing his audiobook. We'll get to him later. But Phil is also a musical produ music producer, and he recorded in front of live audience me telling some of my stories. And then I made a CD of it called Slice of Pie, and that uh, actual slice of pie was a series of fictional stories I wrote about a waitress and a small town guy who finally asked the waitress out at the diner. And at the end of that recording, a friend of mine in the audience was a director. His name is Tim Reischauer. And he said, we need to make that slice of pie series into a movie. You read the screenplay. This was in the spring. He goes, you read the screenplay. We're going to go scout locations in the summer. And in the fall, we're going to go shoot it on your farm in Illinois. And I'm like, yeah, right. And come, come November, late October, November, we went to the farm and we shot in my hometown. And I'm telling you to shoot in your hometown where, you know, in LA, if you want to use a location, there's all kinds of contracts to sign. And let's say your insurance waiver and blah, blah, blah. I used the wagon wheel diner and they said to me, well, here's the keys. That was it. That was <laughs> they lock up when you're done and then you drop the keys off with so-and-so. I'm like, okay. So, um, and we did a, we did a shot where, you know, you have a trailer with a car mounted on it. We used my brother's cattle hauling trailer <laughs> and we strapped the truck down and to be going through Jerseyville, Illinois, which is the next town uh, closest to us, Going through Jerseyville, 
with with that setup with lights and everything on the truck towed through town it was surreal you know and people would just look and go eh, rick holds up to something miracle <laughs> so what happened to that project is it out there somewhere we made a we made a short film an indie film it was uh just under 30 minutes and we toured the uh indie film circuit with it we won a whole bunch of awards it really did quite well it was kind of the calling card for tim reichar the director and i and we produced it together and it was it was a lot of fun i mean it's it's out there i have one copy left i think somebody just bought my next to the last copy the other day and i probably won't replenish it because uh that's a lot of money what a loss oh no <laughs> here are the people out there moaning and groaning rick if you go to my imd imdb page there's a trailer for a slice of pie so okay so when you went out to la um and you had how many children at that point i went to la we had none because i'm i moved to la full-time in 91 when laura and i got married and uh we waited at another seven years before we had kids so six or seven so we had no children fun so you you were you know going to a lot of auditions but you were still doing improv weren't you yes i was doing some improv with um with jeff and jane machowski jeff jane jane uh, morris and john jeff machowski royalty of royalty of improv oh my gosh right, right. and you know ryan styles was would join us and colin mockery when he was in town and so when whose line started i'm like oh cool all these guys or on a TV show now doing what we do on the stage, you know? Pretty cool show. And of course, Laura was the musical director and you know, still is. You know, it's interesting. I had, um, I had a, one of those lulls in my career right about then. And our girls were in preschool and the director of the preschool, as this is so LA, she was, uh, she had been on Broadway as an actress and she was the director of the preschool. And one day she said, Rick, is everything okay? And I said, I'm just bummed because I'm not working. And she said, you come in my office, sit down. And she said, you are so blessed that your wife has a job so you don't have to worry about money and you can spend time with your two preschool daughters because Later in life, there's never been a dad who said, oh, I wished I'd spent more time at work and less time with my family. It's always the other way around. And you you have this blessing of not having, you know, have to get a job to survive and you can be with your kids. And it just turned things around for me. And I had a couple of years there that were pretty slow, but Laura was working and I was, I was uh, you know, I was super dad. Well, at least I thought I was. <laughs> No, that's tremendous. I love to hear that because, you know, it could have gone the way of um, A Star is Born, uh, <laughs> but it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. And so I'm sure your daughters are wonderful, lively, energetic girls with a great parent like you. I think one of the gifts I've gotten from you in our short relationship here um, is that you have a knack for making people feel comfortable. And that's such a gift. I, when I was a little boy, I remember thinking, I want friends. I want a lot of friends. And I've always 
it wasn't something calculated. I just like people. My kids call me Captain Friendly because I can go walk the dog and come back with like the life history of somebody. And they're like, you've been gone for 10 minutes and yeah, the dog pooped. And you, but you know that so-and-so's wife is moving to Iowa, but they're not getting divorced. And they're, you know. <laughs> Tremendous. So let's talk a little bit about your work in the audio field. And we didn't really talk too much about So Says Rick. That came out in May. Is that when that started? Right. My friend Luke Hannington had been telling me for years, he's British, and he said, Rick, you should be doing a podcast with your stories. And he will hate that accent I just did. And I drug my heels about it. Well, guess what? In May, there wasn't much going on. So I started telling my stories and we called it So Says Rick. And Laura was just going to do the intro and the the, uh, closing with me and button up the shell. Well, it's turned into be our podcast where we talk so much together. And then I tell a story. But one time we actually did uh, a couple times we've done a story together. Like one time I did a story and then I told my version of, uh, of a portion of it. And then she did the correct version. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> what actually well, happened? Well, I discovered them in time for the Thanksgiving turkey um story and uh the most recent ones are the holiday stories part one and part two and they're just so touching i just love them thank you it's funny both the the turkey memoirs and the oh holy night story i wrote in early 2000 so they're 15 18 years old and I just didn't have a, a platform for them. And I had told them maybe one or two places and they're fictional, you know, cause so much of the storytelling um, in LA is first person narrative, which I love doing that too, but I didn't have any platform for fictional stuff. And so to do this, and then Laura scored like the old holy night, Laura scored it. And then a couple of my friends came in at the end and a big part of the story is these two older ladies in this Midwestern church singing, uh, Oh, night divine, and those big soprano voices. And they came in and they recorded that safely one at a time. And Laura wore a mask to record it, but we tagged the show with that. And it was, uh, it was turned out to be really sweet. I'm glad you liked it. Oh, I definitely did. And the elderly ladies played such a pivotal part. It was really, really great. I hope everybody goes out and listens to it now. I want to ask you too about writing. Do you write every day? I mean, you sound like you're a pretty prolific writer. No, I don't write every day. But when I'm a guy who needs deadlines and a project. So uh, like I'm doing a storytelling in January where they want a specific story. I. I write a story for it, or I take one of my stories and adapt it and clean it up and edit it down. It, writing is editing. You know, we, a lot of us have created. That's for sure. Mm, yep. Yeah. Write, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Edit, cut, cut, cut. And Laura is such a good person to bounce things off of because she'll say, Rick, you don't need to say that. You don't need to say this. You don't need to say that. And I'm like, oh, you're right. Mm. We were talking too about the kind of resurgence 
that's gone on. I, 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 a few years ago, I took a storytelling workshop and there's even in a little town of Naples, Florida, there's storytelling groups and everything. And uh, I think, you know, storytelling has been around what, since the cavemen were drawing pictures uh, and then the Greeks and up to modern times. And uh, you were there when the cavemen were working on those walls, I think. They, they had a picture of you, I think, Rick. I, <laughs> I actually walked by a mirror the other day without a shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, I'm like one of those, uh, one of those drawings of, of cavemen as he's progressing from paleo. You know, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a silverback gorilla. So, <laughs> but but really, I think that in the recent years, I don't know how long it's been going on, but that storytelling has become so popular. And can you talk about that a little bit and your thoughts on that? Well, I think it has really exploded. And you've got shows like The Moth on NPR, um, which really highlight first person narrative, true stories. And it makes people realize hearing those stories makes you realize I've got stories I can tell. And if you work on constructing a story, yeah, we probably all have a few stories to tell. I remember listening, my inspiration was Garrison Keillor on, um, on uh, Prairie uh, Home. Prairie Home Companion, thank you. I'll say that again. My inspiration was Garrison Keillor on Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> because I like to tell stories that are based on people that I grew up with. Um, even if they're fictional, there's, there's truth in those stories because I know these people I'm talking about and I love those people. I think they're interesting. But the first person narrative stuff that you're talking about is really taking off. And I'm part of a community here. I listen to, um, my friend, who's my friend now, I listened to a, a storyteller named Ty Fance, and Ty told a story like I want to tell stories. And this was a few years ago, and I, I met him afterwards I'm after the show, and I'm like, Ty, you don't know me, but I tell stories like you do. I want to do this. I want to do it again, because I haven't done it since um, Pig Boy, my one-man show, so or not very much. So now I'm part of that community and I had a friend call me the other day and say, can I run my story by you? I, um, I belong to an improv group, a workshop called Improv Co-op, which is um, Dan Castellaneta, who um, yep. is pretty famous, and his wife, who's a great writer and improviser. And then some other Second City veterans, and which is code for older people. Um, <laughs> uh, but like Jeff and Jane that we had talked about before and Jonathan Stark from, uh, from you know, the Groundlings. Anyway, but we're all writers too. And the idea behind Improv Co-op is we would bring in things that we were working on writing and have the group either give us notes or improvise on them. And anything we create through the improvisation belongs to whoever brought the story or play or screenplay in. So I bounce my stories off of them now and I get great notes from them. So that's quite a resource for me. You say, you asked me earlier on what workshops I had taken. I I'm learning a lot from people like that, that I get to work with. And in Chicago, I worked with, in Chicago, I worked with Sheldon Patinkin 
and Bernie Sollins, who started Second City, right, right. one of my directors, he's the one that got me started smoking cigars. He would bring expensive cigars. <laughs> That's when we'd sit in the theater and smoke a cigar and nobody thought anything of it. Boy. I'm sorry, I rambled on. What was your question? <laughs> no, 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 I love it. I love those stories uh, about the early days of improv and Second City and some of the pioneers in the work. Uh, but I think this could be a segue into the work that you're, the project you're involved with right now, Rick. I just finished recording an audio book for Phil Swan, uh, the guy I was talking about earlier, who's a musical director and musician and a writer. And it was his very first novel. He's done five or six now, but his very first novel. And it was a doozy. It was my first one. There are 49 major characters in it. And in the prologue alone, um, it's set in 1778 when Ben Franklin, um, a Frenchman named Jules Magrault, and another Frenchman, uh, King Louis XVI, and Mozart, Austrian are all talking. So just there alone was one of the more complicated audiobook chapters I'll probably ever do. But I want to do more of them because um, I'll say this with complete modesty, I'm pretty good at them. I, um, I really like, I'll give an example. Um, there's one scene where there are four FBI CIA types talking. So there's a uh, there's, there's Scott Douglas, who's maybe from Boston. I don't know. He sounds a little bit like it. There's uh, Mr. Wu, Mr. Wu, who talks up here and has a higher voice. There's Agent Thomas Fowler, who talks like this with a gravelly voice. And then, um, and then there's uh, Bob Greenfield. He's the head of the FBI. So <laughs> to have those four guys talking and keep all those characters separate because one of my pet peeves about audiobooks is when I can't tell who's talking. Uh-huh. And um, I think I've done a pretty good job. Actually, the writer gave me a really nice compliment. He listened to the latest chapter and he said, he listened to the latest chapter and he said, Rick, I forgot I was listening to you. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Oh, wow. That is yeah. tremendous. I can't wait till it. When do you think it'll be out? Um, Maybe as soon as next week. I'm done recording it and we need to edit, which is such, well, we've said it before, editing is the biggest part of anything we do. So, hey, can I tell you a story? The dumbest, uh, dumbest thing I've done as an actor, the dumbest decision I made? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I was friends with Don LaFontaine, who is the voice. He's the most famous voiceover artist in the world. And we went to church together. He's the one that uh, did all the movie trailers and created the, the saying, in a world, in a world where this, he's the guy. So one day, now this is years ago, this is years ago, he said to me, Rick, you have a very interesting voice. Why don't you go with me one day and I'll introduce you to everyone at every studio I go to. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, you ready? I said, Thanks, Don, but I'm a, I'm an on on camera kind of actor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, what I would do. And Don is Don has since passed away, and he was such a great guy and a good friend. Mm. But the fact that, and I was working on camera, and I didn't have a voice demo reel. But why I didn't say, "Give me two weeks, I'll have a demo reel." I've got a wife with a studio; I could put together a demo reel. Yeah. Oh, dumbest choice, dumbest choice. How about the smartest choice? Probably buying the farm, so I didn't have to worry about money in those in those those lean times also i went to school at mcmurray college got a degree in theater so i had um i had a real basis as an actor which a lot of improvisers don't and i know that helped me a lot but i learned how to be an on-camera actor by watching all these veterans i I would get hired by this uh, by a by a on a commercial or an industrial film even, and I would watch these veteran actors and how they conducted themselves on the set, how they did their job, and I learned from them. The first sitcom I did, very first sitcom I did was Roseanne, and I learned a lot about what I don't want to do from doing Roseanne. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. The best thing I've done is to really keep my eyes open, watch, learn from people I want to be like, and watch people I don't want to be like. I don't want to be the guy that nobody wants to work with because he's a jerk. I I like getting along with people, and I but I like doing my job too. I want to be a professional. And you certainly are. So let's talk a little bit. You were teaching workshops uh, with Laura sometimes. You were teaching musical improv workshops. And... Uh before the, the great pandemic. Um, are you still teaching now? We are, we're actually still teaching online. We coached, uh, we coached our friends um, in Tucson last from Unscrewed Theater last week. Uh, we co we've coached a few times online. Laura does more of the coaching and teaching. I, I know you're one of her students, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, I just went to help her out like the first couple of times in the in the uh, improv teaching improv classes and uh, music improv and we turned out make a really good team and um we it's funny we'll go and people want to take the workshop because of laura hall and they know they can learn from her and sometimes they look at me like and who are you and by the end of the oh. workshop, it's okay but i'm laura hall's husband and i don't mind being, <laughs> i do not mind being that but then by the end of the workshop, they're like, oh, the notes you gave me were so good. So I've been doing this long enough that um, I, I, well, we make a good team teaching together and we taught, uh, we've taught in Europe and we've taught all over um, the United States and in Canada. It's, I miss being live with people, but being able to teach from or coach from on Zoom or whatever format we're using is better than not doing it all at all. And the travel's easier. Hmm. Oh, that's for sure. No jet lag, huh? Nope. So, I mean, there's something exciting about Zoom, even though with music, it's still very difficult because of the lag and some of the other platforms aren't really that much better yet, I don't think. But uh, I think you'd be a wonderful teacher. 
And so, uh, and Zoom affords you to be teaching to people in Japan and Austria and Bogota and all those places. So you're getting to know people on an international basis that you never might've met before. Right, right, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's improv going on all, everywhere and it's kind of a unite US art form. We, we get kind of credited for having nurtured it over the years so it's really hot in europe and other countries so well yes i believe it started at hull house with the mother of social work jane adams who got the mother of folk games neva boyd and then one of neva's students named viola decided to come to hull house as well so as right. a social worker i'm very proud of that lineage i gotta tell you right 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 that and then the Salvation Army marching band. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been such a fun interview, and I'm so happy that you had the time to spend with us today. I don't know why I said us, like the royal we. It's just me and you. <laughs> no, you and your dog. Yes, my dog's been barking a bit. Yes, she has. Yeah. Anyway. No, I'm so glad I'm glad to talk to you. And um, and we've improvised a scene together in your a workshop with Laura and that was really fun so it was fun we'll have to do that again sometime Rick okay. okay great well listen I'm wishing you a wonderful holiday season and um I know whatever you do it's going to be brilliant because you're a nice guy well thank you and I will um just want to do one plug for Phil Swan on yes. on audible.com look him up and the book I'm doing is called the Mozart conspiracy and I'm pretty proud of what what I'm coming up with here so um, hopefully that'll be out in a week or so okay and we'll put an update for that as soon as it as soon as it shows up yeah absolutely now Thank are you, you doing Mozart's voice too uh, no, Mozart is never, uh, he's, he's, oh yes, actually I did do, and I had to do Austrian and I'm like, oh, where can I get a good Austrian accent? And I'm like, oh, watch the Terminator. Cause he is, <laughs> he's Austrian. Yes. Yeah. That's one thing. Accents. I still got to do a lot of work there, but, um, I just love the body of work you've done so far. And that was just the beginning. And now we're going into another phase and, I can't wait. Maybe someday we'll actually see each other in real time. That will be great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.